Good evening and welcome to this La Trobe Asia webinar event, Violating Peace, Sex, Aid and Peacekeeping. My name is Beck Strading. I'm the Executive Director of La Trobe Asia at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia. I would like to begin this event by acknowledging the elders, past, present and emerging of the Wurundjeri people, who are the traditional custodians of the land upon which La Trobe University sits. Uh, I would also like to acknowledge the fact that our participants and uh, our audience are located on the lands of different traditional custodians across Australia. So I would like to pay my respects to Indigenous elders past, present and emerging and extend this respect to any Indigenous participants who are joining us online today. Part of our role at La Trobe Asia is to engage the public in meaningful discussion and debate and to deepen our understanding and knowledge of the Asian region. In her new book, Violating Peace, Sex, Aid and Peacekeeping, Dr Jasmine Kim Westendorf draws on extensive field research in Bosnia, Timor-Leste and the, with the UN and humanitarian communities to investigate the impact of sexual exploitation and abuse during peacekeeping and humanitarian operations. The book demonstrates how sexual misconduct by military peacekeepers and abuse perpetrated by civilian peacekeepers and interveners is a serious problem to local populations and to humanitarian efforts. It affects the capacities of the international community to achieve its goals related to stability and peacekeeping and its legitimacy in the eyes of local and global populations. So it is my great privilege tonight to help launch this important and timely book and I am joined by the author and our expert panel to help unpack the important issues that it raises. So first I would like to welcome Dr Jasmine Kim Westendorf, the author of Violating Peace, Sex, Aid and Peacekeeping. Jasmine is a Senior Lecturer in International Relations in the Department of Politics, Media and Philosophy here at La Trobe University. And it's great to have you here to launch your second book. So welcome, Jasmine. Thank you so much, Beck. I would also like to welcome our next panellist, Dr Helen Durham, who is Zooming in tonight from Geneva, where it is uh, early in the morning. Helen is the Director of International Law and Policy at the International Committee of the Red Cross. It's great to have you here today, Helen. Thank you. And welcome to our third guest, Professor Susan Harris-Rimmer, who is Zooming in tonight from Queensland. Uh, in addition to being the welcoming committee for this evening, Sue is the Director of the Policy Innovation Hub at Griffith University. It's great to have you here, Sue. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Uh, there will be an opportunity for audience Q&A in the second half of this webinar for which we will be using the Q&A function which you can see at the bottom of your screen. Uh, but let's get into it. Uh, Jasmine, congratulations on this terrific book. Uh, it is set to make an important contribution to our understanding of peacekeeping, to humanitarian operations and to international policy making more generally. Uh, so the book provides a detailed examination of sexual exploitation and abuse or SEA uh, by international interveners during peacekeeping and in, uh, humanitarian operations. So I'm wondering whether we can start by getting to the really critical issues here. I mean, why is this important to understand and why has it been so difficult to address, despite the fact that there has actually been significant efforts to try to redress this issue? Yeah, it is a really critical issue and a really thorny one at that. In terms of why this is such a critical issue, on the face of it, it's a fairly obvious answer. These are serious human rights violations. These are um, instances of sexual abuse and exploitation they are often violent, they are often criminal, although sometimes they are neither violent nor criminal, um, which makes this a really tricky issue, which I'll speak about in a moment. Um, but these are serious human rights violations that have a significant impact for the outcomes of the international community's important work in conflict and humanitarian contexts. Uh, every year or every couple of years, there's an international scandal that hits the media about um, examples where personnel that have been sent to help protect or support some of the most vulnerable communities in our world have, in fact, abused, exploited, 
um, and harmed those very people who have looked to them for protection and support. And that creates um, a range of ramifications globally in terms of a, a lack of trust in the, the broader peacekeeping and humanitarian projects, a sense of why are we sending these people, you know, why are we contributing to peacekeeping operations if those who we send or who we support are perpetrating these violations. And also just a, a sense of maybe, maybe we'd be better off not doing this work if there is such harm that comes out of it. So there's an element there about how this um, critically undermines the global perceptions of the legitimacy of this important work. And at a time where we know that peacekeeping and humanitarian work is at, we need it more than ever and it needs to be supported and as effective as possible. The other reason why this is so critical is because it goes to the heart of why individual behaviours and the cultures in units and organisations that work in conflict and humanitarian contexts matter. It's not just about why we do this work or why we as the international community deploy humanitarian peacekeeping operations, but it's about how those individuals who are deployed act. And that goes beyond just their sexual interactions with the, uh, the local communities to other elements of their behaviour in terms of racism, um, a sense of uh, an exploitation of power dynamics more broadly, and a whole range of the, the behaviours that that um, come with an individual when they go into a foreign context and the, and the ramifications that they might have. So it's critical for all of those reasons. In terms of why, um, and I should say it also intersects with a number of the other critical challenges facing peacekeeping and facing the international community in terms of conflict between the global north and the global south over who shoulders the burden of peacekeeping operations, um, uh, conflicts or, or, or challenges around the protection failures of peacekeeping operations more broadly. So in my book, one of my cases was Bosnia, the case of Srebrenica, and the um, the huge protection failure there come, came up a lot in my research. Uh, and the institutional challenges facing organisations like the UN and whether these organisations can actually change enough internally in, their, in the way these institutions work to grapple with the broader set of issues around sexual exploitation and abuse. All of those also hint at why this has been such a challenging issue to rein in, in terms of preventing uh, sexual exploitation and abuse and then holding perpetrators accountable and ensuring um, that the local communities uh, feel that, that uh, crimes and abuses have been adequately taken um, seriously and that perpetrators have been dealt with in appropriate, appropriately serious ways. Some of those policy failures reflect the very complex nature of the, the set of behaviours we're talking about, the fact that this is not one single sort of behaviour, it's a mix of behaviours, as I said earlier, some of which are criminal, some of which are not, some of which are driven by um, uh, profit-making motives, I'm thinking there around involvement in prostitution or sex trafficking networks, some of which are connected to um, some levels of negotiation, so transactional sex between adults, where there are elements of negotiation and consent involved, even though they happen in the context of extreme power imbalances. Some of these behaviours are perpetrated opportunistically, individually. Some of them are perpetrated as part of groups, and some of them are really horribly sadistic and violent and pre-planned. That's an enormous variety of issues for one policy framework to respond to. And we're also speaking not just about armed peacekeepers, so military peacekeepers, but police peacekeepers, civilian peacekeepers, humanitarian staff, diplomatic staff, private contractors who work for the security agencies that a range of international actors hire. So it's a really thorny issue in terms of how much it encompasses. One of the critical failures has been that the international community has tended to deal with this as an issue of individuals that fail to obey rules. And so the natural response has been to improve training, to ensure that training is rolled out to a greater number of people, to make sure that people have little um, business cards that say these are the prohibited behaviours. Um, if you know of any of these or if you suspect that these are being perpetrated, contact these particular um, focal points or numbers. The problem there is that the train and punish model is not actually the most effective to deal with such a complex social phenomenon that is sexual exploitation and abuse. And there, there need to be shifts towards grappling with those broader um, issues and dynamics and, and, and factors that give rise to these behaviours. 
So what are the some of the long-term implications of SEA on peacekeeping and humanitarian operations, but also on the societies um, in which these uh, abuses take place? Uh, one of your case studies was Timor-Leste, uh, as, as I mentioned before. So have there been lasting effects of SEA uh, in Timor? Uh, and are there implications for Asia more generally? Certainly. The UN Peacekeeping um, website, the, the whole UN Peacekeeping project is designed around uh, five core goals. One is around protecting civilians from armed conflict. The second is to prevent conflicts in order to reduce human suffering, build stable and prosperous societies, enable people to uh, reach their full potential. The third goal is around strengthening the rule of law and security institutions. The fourth is around protecting and promoting human rights. And the fifth is about empowering women to participate in political processes and to advocate for women's inclusion at all levels of those processes. Sexual exploitation and abuse may seem like an issue that just happens at the individual level, but it critically undermines each of those five very lofty goals that peacekeeping operations are deployed um, in, in service of. In my research, what I've documented is how this occurs on three main levels. The first is on the individual, the community and the family level. These are, as I said at the start, these are human rights abuses, human rights and the, the um, protection and pursuit of human rights is a critical mandate of the United Nations broadly, but also of peacekeeping operations. And these abuses directly undermine and violate those human rights. They also set in train processes that cause further violations of human rights. Um, so in Timor-Leste, for example, uh, I um, documented cases where women and children who were abused by international personnel were forced out of their families as a result of the stigma associated with, with, with sexual violence. They were pushed into larger towns or into Dili, the capital, where they then um, had to find a way for themselves, uh, which in many cases meant that they ended up in uh, sex work and in prostitution, which created... Um, opportunities for them to experience further human rights violations, sometimes by the same international personnel. So Scarlet Timor, the, uh, the sex worker collective in Dili, um, has documented how international personnel, because they were paying higher rates for sex services, demanded to um, not use protection, which led to higher rates of HIV and other STIs, and were also more violent than, um, than local people who might be um, interacting with those those women. That's something that goes beyond just Timor-Leste. It's something that I've documented and that has been documented in, uh, in um, all peacekeeping operations where this particular type of abuse and exploitation occurs. The other big issue in Timor on that individual family level was around the birth of peace babies, um, which is a term that's not actually quite as widely used outside of Timor-Leste. It seems to really reflect the particularities of what happened in Timor-Leste, where people as um, who were part of the international mission, embarked on consensual relationships with local women that were characterised by extreme imbalance of power. They, um, there was an assumption that those relationships would stick. Um, uh, children were born and then fathers left and women were abandoned. And the deep hurt and sense of betrayal that the community as a whole felt about the disrespect in that that type of behaviour was palpable in the number of people who spoke to me about this as a phenomenon before they even spoke about some of the really violent and egregious acts of abuse and exploitation um, that might hit the uh, hit headlines perhaps before something like Peace Babies would. The second level, which is really critical here, which follows on, is about how the perpetration of abuse and exploitation embeds cultures and economies of abuse and exploitation in post-war states. So there's an impact on the structural level. So, for instance, in Timor-Leste, where peacekeepers themselves set up um, bars for, uh, they were called karaoke bars, but where um, they were buying uh, sex off women and children um, and where women and children were being abused and exploited and trafficked in many cases, um, they would work with local taxi drivers in order to procure women and children to provide those services or, or to rape, um, almost sort of in real time. That then meant that taxi drivers and other men and boys were brought into these networks because they were also profiting from that exploitation and abuse. Those networks shifted 
but became solidified essentially um, as the international presence uh, changed and as the peacekeepers withdrew and as other international personnel or business communities moved in. So that remains a, a significant issue that was seeded by the presence of peacekeepers in their initial abuses and exploitation, but has created these cultures and economies that have far outlasted their presence. <clears throat> there are many more examples of that. Uh, and then finally, on the operational level, these forms of these types of behaviour, they undermine, they create mistrust between the local population and the international community. And they also create mistrust and conflict within the international community. Uh, so there were instances in Timor, for instance, of Australian and Jordanian troops literally um, coming to blows, pulling their guns on one another and being unable to work together as part of the peacekeeping operation because um, the Australian uh, contingent knew of really egregious abuses that were being perpetrated by their Jordanian counterparts. Um, so that to me says that it's, it's not just an issue in terms of the relationships externally to the peace operation, but it critically undermines what we know is important in a peacekeeping operation, which is that contingents are able to work with one another and work collectively in pursuit of the goals of peacekeeping. The last long-term impact I won't go into because we spoke about it earlier, but is about the, the, the way these abuses undermine broadly the capacity and credibility of international personnel. And that's something where the implications for the broader Asia region is really important because um, communities outside of, for instance, Timor-Leste see these abuses reported and they are also mistrustful of peacekeepers or international personnel. Um, and that affects the way they as a community will interact with projects or with, um, uh, with, with peace processes, with humanitarian processes uh, and with the United Nations and the humanitarian community more broadly. Well, that's a good uh, place for us to uh, draw in Helen here. Uh, Helen, from your perspective, what do the research findings tell us about how the international community deals with conflict-related sexual violence, the gaps that exist, and how these might be addressed by the international community? Well, uh, thank you and good morning or good evening uh, where you are. And uh, I wanted to uh, also echo your sincere congratulations uh, to the wonderful author because I know the love, sweat and tears that goes into his book. So I was delighted to be able to be back home into Australia just for a moment. So thank you for that. In relation to your question, um, what the research and the book was very clearly articulated is that we've got a lot more work to do. Um, I think often people believe this issue is, as you said at the start, um, obvious, but I think it, it showed the layering. Um, but I think what it, what it did is, is build upon, and I think that's what we have to do in this area, build upon years and years of work behind the scenes. I really loved the analysis about the challenges or the lack of fulfilment of the conduct and discipline approach. But I would probably start by saying that we have to acknowledge the last few decades where we really have brought this issue away from it being just an individual, that's something on the side that happens, into a deeper um, security debate. And I think the creation of enforcement mechanisms, the tightening up of norms in the last few decades have really shifted, which previously it was an unspoken about issue. And uh, I think that's really important. That's what us international lawyers do. But there's that lovely saying that um, if you only have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And I think there's something about the fact that, yes, we need to continue to work on tightening up the normative framework, ensuring that people are trained and they know. But what I really liked, um, which was surfaced up very clearly in your case studies in your book, uh, and some of the work actually the ICRC is doing, is then to shift it across to influencing. So I think this idea about... Um, more deeply embedding it and having traction with weapons bearers uh, above and beyond the traditional they've got to know it, they've got to be trained. And uh, I think that if we don't start working concurrently and strongly in that direction, we're uh, missing half the story. It reminded me, if, if I may say so, in reading it of some of the research that ICLC has done in the last few years, International Committee of the Red Cross. Um, although I'm talking to an Australian audience, so you get my accent, I love it. Um, the research done in the last few years, which has demonstrated that, for example, our approach with dealing with weapons bearers, whether it be the pre-deployment of uh, peacekeepers, non-state armed groups or the regular military, for many years was trained. You know, we've got to have the law known. Then probably about 20 or 30 years ago, we realised they have to also have it in integrated. It can't just be known, it has to be in doctrines, it has to be in... Uh, 
uh, the rules of engagement. But more recently, and, and this uh, Roots of Restraint uh, research was about the fact that it needs to be socialised. So we need to take that next step where we look at values. Uh, and I think that we're having a global debate about this matter at the moment. And sadly, back home in Australia, I think we're looking at that too. You know, um, some of the researchers you probably know about from Elizabeth Wood that looked at why, say, in the US military, where there's a mass of work around the conduct and discipline approach to, for example, uh, um, trying to stop sexual violence within the Defence Force itself. You know, every structure was in place, every capacity to prosecute, every training. Um, and it looked at actually it was the informal norms. It was the hazing processes. It was the way socialisation goes on. Um, we, we experience this quite regularly. You know, we might give a, a very um, important speech to the military about the prohibition of sexual violence. And then one of my colleagues recently contacted me from in the field. Then they have a marching song as they go back to the barracks, which completely undoes the messages that they've just listened to. So, you know, how you can take from knowledge, which we still have to work on, from integration, which still has to be done, into the sort of things you were raising and, and, and really bringing to our attention, and thank you so much, about understanding internal structures, values, and how to embed it in a different type of understanding. So they were the few things I wanted to flag. Obviously, lots more to say, but I know we're on a, a tight time frame. I'll just follow up with you, Helen, if I may. I do agree with the one of the arguments that Jasmine makes about how SEA undermines perceptions of legitimacy of peacekeeping and humanitarian operations and that it has this broader capacity to undermine, you know, the critical work that IGOs and NGOs and other parts of the international community do. So why do these perceptions matter? And is there a crisis of legitimacy here um, that might need to be addressed by these groups? Yes, thank you. I think that's a, a, another really critical point. And obviously our entry point always has to be the humanitarian impact on the individuals, on the communities, on societies. But I think if we don't, once again, have that wider scope of understanding the problem through the lens of legitimacy, once again, we're not using all the tools. Um, I think there's, you know, at, at the meta level, if I may say so, there is a, a crisis of legitimacy globally. Um, so I think it doesn't uh, doesn't surprise, shouldn't surprise any of us about some of these more, I would say, forensic examinations of the missions of those who bear weapons, peacekeepers and others, and I think really importantly, uh, humanitarian organisations. So, so the starting point is entry point always the people, uh, people-centric, but the critical way to also increase the discussion and debate, uh, as you raised in, in the book, is to look at legitimacy I could probably, um, you know, obviously it's very, very clear in a legitimate mandate for those who have go to protect, it once again goes without saying that um, to inverse that and actually be those who uh, 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 undertake activities that are unacceptable makes no, no sense. It makes no sense. Um, and the issues of legitimacy, the relationships between uh, those who are the in the host country and those who are sent is, is critical. And I think... Perhaps these issues have also been surfaced up more with communications. People know more what's going on. Things aren't locked down. There is a desire, a, a thirst for transparency globally. So I think we have sh shifted the debate, and this is a good thing. From, if I may say so, from a uh, humanitarian perspective, it is critical. Um, and, you know, within the ICRC more recently, we've um, really, I would say, it's always been an issue, but I think it was something we as an institution and many other international organisations that are global. We have, in the ICRC, have 20,000 colleagues in, in, in many in war zones with asymmetrical power, with the capacity to make life or death decisions. And if we don't own, understand and examine the power inequality, the embedded concepts around sexism, racism, the interconnectedness of this, the intersectionality, uh, we're not going to survive as a humanitarian institution, uh, ICRC, or even globally. Um, so, for example, we have a full-time staff that works on, on sea issues. Uh, we have a very robust prosecution mechanism. Um, interestingly, from 2006, um, within the ICRC, it's been prohibited to purchase um, sexual services which was a very complex internal debate. Uh, but I think there was a clear understanding with this lack of power. There's, there is no consent and there is no transaction that is possible. 
Um, but I, I do think that, you know, we've had a number of staff dismissed, uh, you know, very, very large number, not very large, but significant numbers of staff dismissed uh, once the prosecutions um, have been undertaken or um, yeah, investigations and a hotline for affected populations. And I think what I've seen more recently is a shift away from just the unacceptable behaviour amongst humanitarians, which is a big issue itself, to an accountability to the affected population that is broader in its concepts, involving both the need to um, stamp out, uh, investigate and take very seriously any um, accusations um, and evidence of C, but also to listen more carefully. I think there's an old saying, you know, treat others as you'd like to be treated, but how about treat others as they'd like to be treated is, is really a mind shift. So I think there's definitely an issue around legitimacy for those who have a mandate to go in and actually try and make it better. Um, the whole infrastructure of missions mandates crumbles if, if indeed uh, there is the inverse of that sort of behaviour. And I think it's really great that we've got books like this that will start even uh, deeper conversations. Now, Sue, I might bring you into the conversation here and ask the same question that I asked Helen about um, why SEA is a problem for legitimacy of peacekeeping and humanitarian operations. But I also wondered whether you could comment on whether there's a role for women's leadership or uh, empowerment strategies in addressing this issue in post-conflict environments. Mm. What I think is the, the genius of Jasmine Kim's book is that she really these fundamental questions, we have got an automatic reflex that the, inter, the first interveners in a dangerous conflict, post-conflict situation should be military men. So the way to deal with armed conflict is to send different armed men, and they are mostly armed men, right? So this, this I think, um, Jasmine Kim's book highlights that maybe the logic here is flawed. I, I always have a joke that when I'm on the head of, the UN, I'm going to just flood the world with crack teams of feminist anthropologists, right? That's not a joke, right? We, I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan in police as a better responder than military. Um, I'm also a fan in, you know, saying, you know, my, most of my field experience um, that's in this book, that's relevant to this book, is the Timor example. I saw those shirts, you know, feel safe tonight, sleep with the peacekeeper. It made me want to completely rich um and there were some i i don't think you can overcome the power imbalance in some of those scenarios i don't think it's possible i don't think and that and timor was a case where the un was the government so it wasn't it was a transition it was the transitional administration it was the government it was a un run mission if we can't get it right in timor we're not going to get it right anywhere else right that the lines of accountability towards the UN were stronger than they've been in many other missions. And there was still this inability to deal with these issues in a way that, that I totally agree, I think undermined, um, undermined the, the, the success of the mandate and brought into disrepute the UN mandate, as well as several of the contributing countries. It's actually very hard to get countries to contribute now, peacekeeping forces, and so I think that's led to some of these issues as well. But I think we have to rethink, you know, why is it a brilliant idea to send large groups of armed men into a situation, a post-conflict situation? Is it, is it the best we've got? Is it the best tactic we have? And I think we often have these perverse ideas, you know, we, we deal with um, armed um, armed groups uh, as the only ones who get to sit at the peace table. Right, so there's all these perverse incentives to, to carry arms because he will be engaged in the peace process and, and unarmed actors won't be. We have so many weird, you know, I think we have to keep trying to flip uh, the way we think about post-conflict justice or we're never going to make any progress. So I really love the way that um, Jasmine Kim's book puts a lens on this um, deeper human rights issue that's at stake in some of these interventions as well, you know, that it can found SEA can compound human rights and abuses and poverty. It can change political economies. Uh, and it's, a, it's strategically important that it's linked to all types of other behaviour. When I think about the sorts of contempt I saw displayed towards Timorese people by 
the folk who were meant to be there, to, you know, whose whole job, whose heavy pay packets were all there to help those people. It was disturbing. And I'm including in that, I'm afraid, my own cohort, aid workers and humanitarian workers, you know, outside the military at the time. Um, so, you know, we, we, have some, we have some deep lessons to learn in the humanitarian uh, community. Uh, the other thing I thought was, when, when I was experiencing it, the same in Somalia and the same in Afghanistan, these ideas of um, the cognitive dissonance it creates in the local population. You know, you're, you're, meant, to be, you're meant to be the ones who are going to save us. And I, I think there's some really great international relations work um, by Suzanne Karstedt about post-conflict justice, where she, she talks to many, many, many populations about how they feel. And there's always this idea with international interveners that people are making complicated judgments about, should I trust these people? And will they really be here? They're going to leave and we're going to be left with the problems we had before. So there's a lot of complicated trust negotiations going on between the interveners and the local community. You see that very clearly in Afghanistan, but you saw it in Timor too, you know, a complicated relationship to these people are going to leave and then what do I do? How do I navigate the people that are left behind? Uh, and so in that kind of scenario, you have to be demonstrating your bona fides all the time as an international intervener. If you cannot do that, if you are in fact seen as part of the problem, uh, you know, I've been crying about this all week with the, with the special forces issues in Afghanistan, which we knew were coming for years. It, all my Afghan colleagues telling me, you know, you're doing the Taliban's work here. You, you have just done the Taliban's work. You know, you've undermined all the trust in the international community that people have had. You've dealt with their worst fears that maybe these people are just the same as the others. Um, you're dealing with people whose social contract has been broken by conflict and trying to build up that trust again is, is very difficult. So I had so many resonances. But basically, I guess I look back on Timor, I look back on Somalia, I think, what if we'd given that money, all that money that was spent dealing with those international peacekeepers and we'd given it to local women's organisations? There is always a choice about what you fund and about what you choose to support. And I'm very heartened that the humanitarian community is starting to think more about first responders and how they are the most important link in the humanitarian chain. You know, we didn't have that thinking back in the day and it's evolving and I'm very happy to see that evolving. Um, and I think it's the same here. You know, the most important actors in post-conflict justice are the local communities. And, you know, I think we just have to keep turning that conversation back to how are we supporting local communities and how are we going to get out of their way if we have to? Um, but, yeah, I, I, I really, really love the part of the book that says it's, it, sexual exploitation is a wider symptom of contempt for and othering of the local population. It comes with racism. It comes with lack of empathy. It comes with a sense that these people for whom you are perhaps putting yourself in danger as a peacekeeper are not worth the sacrifice. Uh, I heard a lot of that language as well. You know, why am I here putting myself in danger to, to help these people? So I think we need to deal with a much more complicated power dynamic than we have been yet um, dealing. And I, and I will also, just one last point is, the book is so similar to the wonderful work I've seen done on sexual violence within militaries, as Helen pointed out. So we're kind of exporting this pathology when we send international peacekeepers no, no professional military has dealt with gender equality inside its ranks properly as yet. And so this is why I keep thinking to myself, why do we then keep thinking that these peacekeepers will treat those women with respect when they're not treating their own colleagues with respect, let alone local Australian women? So, you know, until we figure something like that out. Um, now, if peacekeeping was wildly effective, and had solved cycles of conflict and various other things that maybe I would be in well, but we don't have that kind of evidence either, right? Mm -hmm. So I think um, books like Jasmine are, Jasmine's are really important. It might help us reframe armed interventions post-conflict and that might help us reframe what we think of as peacekeeping 
um, and effective peacekeeping interventions. And they might make us think about who are the actors that we send into these places. Well, so just, um, that's all those thoughts. I had all those thoughts as a result of the book. Well, just on the actors that are, uh, that are sent in uh, to humanitarian operations and peacekeeping contexts. I mean, Australia was a big player uh, in um, the peacekeeping in Timor-Leste uh, and you uh, and Jasmine have a lot of experience uh, in the Timor-Leste case study. So what do you see as being the main implications in terms of the findings for Australia and Australia's future role in peacekeeping? Should, should um, our military, should our um, diplomats, should our politicians, what, what lessons should they be taking from uh, Jasmine's research findings? Mm. I, th I think they should be, I mean, I think this kind of crude, there's a rotten apple approach to SEA is, is clearly wrong. The, there's something wrong with the barrel. I think we've got to figure that out. I can't believe it's taken us this long, but there's something wrong with the barrel, right? There's not rotten apples in it. Um, but I, I also hope that we think about more complicated types of missions, you know, more civilian-led, more diverse, uh, more kinds of people. You know, I wish we'd had more sociologists in Timor. I wish we'd had more historians. I wish we'd got the Timorese diaspora involved. You know, we had large groups of Timorese diaspora and refugees in Australia and, you know, um, were, they, were they even spoken to? Um, I don't think they were. I mean, the ACFID was very involved with that community and, you know, they were a massive resource which we could have used and didn't. Um, and I think this idea of just pouring our support where possible into local actors, uh, you know, You'll remember, uh, Jasmine Kim, you know, the big boat where people were staying and, you know, everything about it was wrong. There's a, there's a beautiful um, book by Kathleen Frank, actually, from New York University, and she says post-conflict is often a remasculinization time and a time of retrenchment because in Timor it was so visible. You know, the men came down from the mountains, uh, you know, the Fallentil, the international peacekeepers came pouring in, Many of the contingents, Bangladesh, Jordan, Japan, they were all male contingents. Most of the senior UN staff were men. Um, you know, it was, it was Sergio, God rest his soul. There was all of these kind of um, enormously tall men everywhere all of a sudden. Um, and, you know, I can see I can see how frightening that must have been for most of the, the local teamers. It was terrifying. And... They were so traumatised, the local Timorese population um, in those beginning years, and there was sort of no allowance made for that kind of trauma that people were experiencing either. Mm -hmm. So there were so many things we did wrong. I would like to say that we did them better in Solomon Islands. I don't think that's the case. Um, again, a very masculine, boots-in kind of area. In, in my, my own work in um, Afghanistan is looking at the Bachabatsi phenomenon um, you know, I often think we get too, too caught up in the brand or the narrative of a successful mission and ignore anything that has a counter-narrative. And, uh, and you know, this, this kind of brand UN success, you know, it's got to be authentic or it's not worth protecting. And I think that's what Jasmine Kim's book also brings out too, that, you know, um, Afghanistan's not a peacekeeping mission, but it's, it's got many of the similar elements to what Jasmine Kim's describing some really dreadful behaviour and, um, and whole industries. Cambodia was the same. You know, it's just the same pattern. I think we've got to stop thinking that there's, there's, there is clearly a structural problem with the way the UN undertakes peacekeeping work. Now, we will turn to Q&A now, so please put your questions into the Q&A box. Uh, but did I, I did want to sneak in one more question before we get to the Q&A. Uh, Jasmine, it's, it's actually uh, based on what Sue just said about the narrative and about whether there have been attempts by um, organisations or, or members of the international community to try to resist this sort of research or to diminish um, the effects or the scope or the extent of this issue? Have you found that some people are very resistant to the idea that this is something that is critical and that it isn't just an isolated incident or a, a set of bad apples, as, as Sue said? I think it's a real mixed bag. There are, I think the last 15 years have seen a real shift in the way the international community, particularly at this very senior levels, deal with this issue. I think there is a genuine commitment at the, the highest levels of the United Nations now um, 
to really resourcing, properly resourcing and supporting the work that needs to go on to prevent sexual exploitation and abuse and hold perpetrators accountable and to start rethinking some of the um, the ways the organisation and other large organisations are approaching issues of gender inequity and so on. I think that there's a couple of challenges. A UN peacekeeping mission is only the sum of its parts and once a... Once a mission has been authorised, the Secretariat, the Secretary-General has to go out with a begging hat um, and hope that member states contribute enough troops to um, launch a viable mission. There are some member states who routinely use sexual violence as part of their war-making and as part of their conflict. It is not in their interests to stop their personnel or change the culture within their militaries to stop that occurring in peacekeeping operations. I think that really highlights how there are a lot of reasons why countries um, contribute personnel to peacekeeping operations and not all of them are about the the um, sort of the lofty human rights and, and peace and security mandates. Some of them are much more self-interested and cynical. Um, so there's a conflict there, I guess, in, in assuming that it's in everyone's interests to deal with this issue seriously. There's another issue, which is that UN peacekeeping operations are criminally under-resourced. Um, so mission leadership are, are expected to make impossible choices about how to distribute the pretty meagre resources that are, they are provided to try and support the sort of transformation that like, it's enormous what they are expected to do in terms of the, the support and leadership for security, governance, justice, human rights and social transformation in a conflict context. And I've met with a lot of people who say, I get it, I, I really wish I could do this, but there are literally people being killed in the streets. Mm -hmm. And so I have to stop, you know, I have to resource things, I have to distribute resources to stop that first and then we can get to this issue. I don't think that's the case. I think, as Sue says, if we rethought how these missions were actually um, run, how they were made up and, and sort of constituted from the outset, we might end up with a different set of um, decisions and questions at that point. But I, so I can see why people feel themselves to be in such a difficult position. That said, there are others who, who don't get it. Um, and I've met with senior personnel who've said to me, the rules around sexual exploitation and abuse are nothing more than white people trying to regulate the sexual mores of brown people. And the UN, yes, we should be concerned about sexual abuse, but we should not be concerned about sexual exploitation. Because sexual exploitation, transactional sex, um, prostitution, sex work, it's legal in some places, it's adults, you know, it's too messy, we just can't get involved in that, let it be, focus on the stuff that really matters. So what I'm trying to say is that it's really hard to give a standard answer because there's such a diversity of views still about this. And I think some of that also reflects the fact that there is such a, a patchy response to gender issues as part of anything to do with security, you know, broadly. Some people are fully on board and there's still a lot of conflict among others about whether we're actually talking about a soft issue or a hard security issue or, you know, what we ought to be doing. So there's a lot of work that's yet to be done, even though we have come a long way and there are a lot of good people doing work on this as well. Okay, well, Helen, I might direct um, our first question from the audience uh, to you. And Tina says, thank you for the fascinating webinar. So thank you, Jasmine, for writing the book that has enabled this fascinating webinar. Uh, but the question is, what are your views on responsibility sharing among agencies in investigating SEA? Since there is a major lack of investigator expertise on sexual and gender-based violence globally, including with SEA, how can agencies move forward on this together? I might ask you, Helen, and then I might pass that back to Jasmine uh, uh, to see whether you've got any views on that, Jasmine. Great. Well, thank you. And it's it's a really important question. And I think the um, recent, uh, probably in the last few years, as we've seen, we've sort of rightly so, the, the Me Too lens, if I can use it in the crude terms, has turned upon the um, international um, organisations. Um, I think there's a number of things that can be done. I think the investigation element is difficult because I think one of the issues that I, I really like that we're discussing is also about resources. 
I, I, I love the fact that we need to rethink things and we really need to do that. But we also need to work out where we put resources because the best rethinking, the best infrastructure, if there's not then the capacity to drive it forward and it's not properly resourced is another matter. Um, there's been a lot of um, discussion amongst agencies. Uh, I think probably the, the uh, asker of the question, thank you, because I'm sure you're maybe part of some of that interagency task force and discussions. I mean, one of the things is also to stop it before you do the investigation. And I know that I've worked very closely with the Director General of the International Committee of the Red Cross in recent years to make sure that there is communication between agencies about individuals who are made, uh, who are investigated and found to have perpetrated these sort of actions, that they don't go out one door and come in a window somewhere else. So some sort of um, uh, information that's exchanged, the requirement if you're doing um, um, uh, what's it called, you know, when you give advice about whether someone's were, uh, able to be doing a job, referencing, sorry, it's early in the morning. Um, those sort of things are very important before the, before the situation arrives. So I think there's one, you have to do preventive work and put um, interagency infrastructure around prevention. And at the same time, I think there does need to be deeper reflections on sharing resources. Um, as I mentioned before, we have in, in the OCRC and we're, we're a fairly well-funded institution. As some of my colleagues think, we are fairly well-funded. And so to be able to build up a, a group of former police investigators to really drive home with due process, because this constantly has to have due process, it's not a cheap thing to do. So I think that um, going forward from the prevention to the investigation to then um, how we deal with addressing the issues needs to be done more with more interface between different organisations at the same time I think we also have to factor into our reflections around that, the internal sensitive nature about some of these things for institutions. There was a big internal debate within the ICRC of whether to come out a number of years ago and say, in the last little while, 21 people have been dismissed on this issue. Um, because there is nothing like the appetite sometimes for the public if they see those who are saying they wanted to do good stumbling the appetite. I see this very uh, clearly uh, um, reflected in many issues, the appetite for people to then say they're all hypocrites and so we shouldn't uh, support them at all. So how do we find the right balance between um, being open, honest, transparent, owning these issues? I think it was a really good point that you made, Susan, about you know, the power imbalance, it's not going to change. You know, If you're sending uh, the capacity, if we're sending surgeons into, uh, into Ukraine to set up hospitals, the, the power imbalance is something we have to be aware of, we have to take into account, we have to push against. But I think we've got to work out where do we put our energy? So prevention and more interfacing, um, I think, is, is really critical. But I'm very keen to hear uh, what others think about this. Uh, Jasmine, you made some recommendations in your book, uh, I believe, on this issue. Yeah, I think um, I would echo everything that Helen has just said about the need for that. Um, for, for working out how agencies can, can work together and share information. I think one of the critical issues that I kept coming up against is that getting to the investigations in the first place is actually the first hurdle because there remain um, enormous social and cultural penalties for reporting um, and there, because of the diversity of the sorts of behaviours we're talking about as sexual exploitation and abuse, um, people can be very reluctant to make allegations or to raise concerns about uh, colleagues when they don't have a huge amount of effort, evidence because these are serious allegations, you know, um, but they are also the sorts of behaviours that it can be very difficult to try and gather the sorts of data or certainty before people report. So, for instance, a lot of um, international uh, personnel who've been involved in a variety of peacekeeping, humanitarian and other um, uh, work in conflict environments would say to me, in retrospect, something was going on there that wasn't kosher and I wish I'd reported it. But at the time, I didn't know exactly what was going on and I wasn't sure what would happen to me if I raised that. You know, I know that this person lost her contract when she raised these issues and so on. And the same goes for local um, community members who I met with who would say sort of the opposite, uh, sort of a, a, an adjacent point. They'd say, you know, I know this woman who made an allegation and nothing happened except she was thrown out of her family. So why would I bring this to the attention of the authorities? Why would I go through that process? So I think 
um, dealing with uh, investigations is one thing, but actually dealing with the culture that makes it okay to make allegations, to raise issues, so that investigators can take them seriously and building trust in that process is also critical. I think the other thing I, I think we need to do more thinking of globally is what, it, the, what options there might be for some sort of cross-institutional victims' rights advocacy or, um, you know, I'd like to say some sort of ombudsperson for reparations and response so that if people make allegations and feel that they are not being taken seriously or not being dealt with fairly by an organisation or the outcomes aren't fair, that they have someone to go to. That's critically important because of the enormous amount of individual um, uh, uh, latitude for how allegations are dealt with. There are demonstrated cases where children have been raped and given a few dollars afterwards and investigators have classified that rape as transactional sex, not as sexual abuse and rape because of the assumptions and, and, and the whole baggage that individual investigators might bring with them. So we need to deal with, uh, you know, trying to create a level of consistency in this really messy issue as well. Well, Sue, I'm going to pass uh, this next question on to you. Uh, it's a lovely message uh, in the chat from Indu. I, I won't have time to read it all out, uh, but uh, they grew up in a civil war in Sri Lanka and have said that uh, they agree with many of the points uh, that you raised. Uh, and the question uh, raises all sorts of issues around uh, being a member of a, a, a local community where power imbalance uh, where there is that um, balance of power uh, between uh, international representatives of international groups and the local community. So uh, in sum, the question is, what are your suggestions for empowering local communities to deal with this power imbalance in the future, um, whether it be through policy changes or other changes? Yeah, and I've just been reading Barack Obama's new book where he's, he's clearly losing sleep about what happened in Sri Lanka and his inability to, uh, you know, move the needle on justice in that particular area and sort of when you see the way the UN system crumbled um, around some of those, those uh, violent acts, it's, it's really distressing and we saw it again in Rakhine um, and... You know, so that's why I think Jasmine's book really lets us think about these kind of wider structural issues with the UN's ability to prevent conflict and to respond still is, is still extremely difficult. Um, uh, I do think that's right. I mean, we've, we've understood with migrant workers the way to prevent abusive migrant workers is to make sure migrant workers have options and abilities to, to get to outside um, you know, to make complaints outside. And, you know, so the way to deal with the issues around migrant workers is not to work with employers, but it's, it's to help workers, um, you know, find strategies, you know, um, to protect themselves. And I think we might get to that point uh, with some of these peacekeeping um, post-conflict arrangements as well. Putting as much power and resources into the hands of local communities is always the answer, if you ask me. Um, but, uh, you know, how to do that properly um, and how to make sure people have got you know, effective redress or at least the ability to document issues. I've been really heartened by this whole trend towards human rights observatories. So the idea that, you know, maybe people don't have a lot of power but they might have a smartphone and they might be able to, uh, between them, conglomerate evidence that, that proves patterns. We have satellite evidence. There's a, there's a whole range of kind of ways to use people on the ground as witness combined with technology that can help us, you know, so that people aren't stuck in these terrible situations and, and we don't have these issues with truth. You know, there's still a whole lot of people in Timor who still don't know what happened and sort of people in Myanmar who are not clear about what's going on in Rakhine State or other ethnic communities. Telling the truth about places is really important. Um, so I guess that, that kind of approach um, that you talk about is really important, but I also think it's been very difficult. I'm thinking about the Human Rights Council is still really struggling with the organisations. They're just stuck, a veto power or a problem uh, with one of the P5 and, and then everything gets stuck. So, um, you know, maybe we have to rely on people's tribunals and different types of um, avenues but what we can't do is just give up, you know. We can't just let people 
feel isolated and abandoned in the situation they're in. And I, you know, one of the most important things I think is, you know, this book is a type of testimony. It's a type of intervention in and of itself. All the people that spoke to you, Jasmine Kim, they have had their stories listened to deeply and respected and given structure you know, it's such a gift. It's it's also a, I love the way you open the book. The dedication is to those people, the people you're writing about, the beneficiaries of your work. So we can still do much more of that, you know, telling the stories, keeping it on the agenda, make, trying to make sense out of it. You're right. It is incredibly um, important and amazing. Uh, we have our next question is from, uh, a friend of our department, Jasmine Geis, uh, he says, thanks so much. This was amazing again. Uh, and his question is whether soldiers can be peacekeepers. Soldiers undergo extensive training with an emphasis on dehumanisation of the enemy. Peacekeeping, on the other hand, is the first step in a long process of humanisation. I think that's a really important point. I think one of the, I think there's sort of a structural issue to how that, that or and also a temporal issue, explanation here. Um, peacekeeping, I don't think was something that was designed. It, it was never designed ahead of time. It's something that you, the UN has worked out on the fly in response to really terrible situations where in particular civilians um, and civilian populations are at, at great risk of harm um, and death uh, or um, extermination, you know, genocide and so on. Uh, and that has meant that the peacekeeping doctrine, if you will, or the way these operations work is not the most coherent um, approach necessarily, not necessarily the best approach. But once you're on a set of tracks and once you've created institutions around that and departments and organisations and models and, you know, lessons learned, it's very hard to get off those tracks and move in a different direction. Mm. I think it's important here to also recognise that the trend of giving peacekeepers everything to do is not something we just see in peacekeeping. We've seen it in police forces around the world where, you know, there's a greater understanding of the social dynamics of family violence and so... Who do we give that work to? We give it to police. You know, there's a greater understanding of uh, the need to deal with drugs and addiction and it's given to police. The same has happened in the peacekeeping world, that as we've understood the need to improve um, uh, the um, participation of women, we've, we've, we've pushed some of that work onto police, civilian um, protection, human rights monitoring, election monitoring. Uh, peacekeepers have ended up with work that they are not necessarily the best people um, to do. And we need to start taking some of that work away and thinking about how we can get other people like the feminist anthropologist that Sue's been talking about into these missions. But there are peacekeepers, there are soldiers who are excellent peacekeepers. And that's one of the other stories that I've tried to tell in my book, that there are countries who have actively tried to shape their military personnel so that they can do this work well and in ways that are deeply respectful of the populations that they've been sent to serve um, and in ways that also limit what they're doing to what they're good at rather than trying to take on everything. And I think a little bit more humility on the parts of the, um, the militaries about what they are best to take on would also, be, um, would also be valuable here. I think the other thing to recognise is that, unfortunately, um, these personnel are being deployed into often active conflict zones. And so I think it's inevitable that there will be soldiers as part of those missions, but we need to think about how we can rebalance and ensure that they're doing the work they're good at and others are doing the other work. I'm aware that we are running out of time. We have one minute left, so I'm going to squeeze in one question, Jasmine, if you could keep the answer really brief. But this is um, from Ian, who is currently in Iraq, uh, and his question is about um, the underreporting and the reluctance of women to come forward. Uh, what does that mean for um, the investigation and the ability of the uh, international community to take further action? I think that's probably one of the trickiest issues in relation to this because there are so many cases where an initial allegation is made and where the investigation can't be taken forward because um, uh, victims or witnesses are unwilling to participate in the process because of the stigma, the punishment and so on. I think there's also a very real fear from some humanitarian organisations about how to deal with this because if, it caused, if they are perceived to be abusing and exploiting, they could themselves become targets of 
um, direct violence. And there have certainly been documented instances of that. So there's a complex balance, I think, on both sides of that equation. I don't have a great answer to that, except to say that it is therefore a problem when we only look at statistics of allegations that have reached a conclusion that has found that someone has perpetrated abuse because many cases are closed as unsubstantiated and, in fact, that's because victims have been unwilling or unable to provide the sort of information that meets the pseudo-legal standards that some of these, and in some cases the legal standards, um, but often the pseudo-legal standards that organisations are working with through HR departments and investigations mechanisms internally. I think that means we need to rethink how we deal with allegations and whether this is a very unpopular idea in the discussions I've had so far, but should we be should we be sharing information about individuals who have had multiple allegations made against them, mm -hmm. even if those allegations have gone nowhere? I know this really flies in the face of a lot of the presumptions around um, justice and, and the legal system, but in these situations, it's critical that we we work on this and we find a better way to deal with it. And I think that might at least start helping with um, not letting people get away with it or not letting those cases that are very difficult for people to testify about um, fall through the gaps. Now, I'm afraid uh, that we have to leave it there. If you want to find out more of Jasmine's thoughts, then you'll have to uh, buy her superb book, uh, which you can order through the Cornell University website. Uh, we have put the link in the chat. Uh, there is also a special promo code that you can use, which is 09FLYER to get 30% off the book. But we will also be attaching the PDF to that offer uh, when we send out our thank you uh, email, which you'll receive in a couple of days. So uh, I'd like to finish here by again congratulating Chasman. It's a terrific achievement and it is a really important topic. And I would also like to thank Helen and Sue for sharing their time and their expertise uh, tonight. It has been a truly uh, fascinating uh, and you know, grim uh, discussion on this incredibly critical issue. Uh, I would also like to thank you, the audience, uh, for watching this Latrobe Asia event. The webinar has been recorded and if you have registered for the event, you will get sent the email links when they are ready. This is actually our last Latrobe Asia webinar for 2020. Normally I sign off by plugging our next event, uh, but on this occasion, I'm going to wish you all a happy holiday season and I hope that uh, you all find time to uh, rest and recover and recharge uh, after what has been a very strange, strange year. So uh, at La Trobe Asia, we look forward to bringing you more exciting events in 2021. So please follow us on Twitter at La Trobe Asia or join our mailing list to find more details for events and Latrobe Asia publications. So thank you again.